really great. Thank you, Kate. James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that person ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now the brother or sister of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, but the rich person is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So also the rich person in the midst of his pursuits will die out. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Amen. Thank you, Kate. So, looking at the book of James, and um, <clears throat> I thought I'd start by what do we know of, of James? The first line is James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's a story in itself, because really in the New Testament, there's only one character who fits the description of someone simply known as James in the early church. He was not the only James, more properly Jacob. I, I, I don't quite know how we came by the name James. The, the Greek is quite clear. It's Jacoboi or, ja or Jacob. But somehow, maybe something to do with King James in the authorised version, he became <laughs> James. He wasn't the only one, as you know, uh, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, was James. Um, he was uh, executed in, in Acts 12.2, the brother of John, um, became one of the early martyrs of the church. So who was someone that was known just simply as James, in, in a way that everybody knows who Boris is today? No need to say Boris Johnson because everybody knows who Boris is. And it was the same for James. Everybody knew who he was. He didn't even have to uh, describe himself. And from the earliest times, the 
And the Lord's brother is understood to be the author of this letter. And he had a leadership position in the Jerusalem church. He is referred to in Galatians 2 verse 9, where Paul describes how he went to Jerusalem and he met the pillars of the church, who he described as James, Peter, and John. Interestingly, he listed James the first in that list. And James chaired the council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. And when Paul went to Jerusalem the final time, it says that it's to James and the elders that he went. And Jude, another brother of the Lord, in his letter says he is a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So James is clearly a very significant and, and prominent person in the early church. So how did James become this leader in the early church when he wasn't one of the 12 apostles? Well, a bit of background, we can read of him in Mark chapter 6, 3, and Matthew 13, 55 as one of the four sons of Joseph and Mary. And because he's noted first in those sons, he's probably the, the eldest of the rest. But we learn in John 7, 5, that even Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. And we learn in Mark 3.21 that they thought that Jesus had lost his mind and they came to uh, take uh, protection of him. There's an interesting poignant scene at the cross where Jesus committed his mother to John's care. And John is very likely a, a, a cousin of Jesus. But because Jesus was the eldest son and was responsible for his mother, at that point, he was committing his mother uh, to be looked after. And it seems very likely James wasn't there, not at this crucial event involving his eldest brother and his mother. And that in itself is incredibly significant because of the importance of family culture in that time. But then, as we begin to read the book of Acts, there is James in the upper room praying with his mother, praying with the apostles, praying with all the believers, waiting for the Pentecost outpouring. And he with the others received the Holy Spirit and was part of forming the early church in which God raised him to lead. So what happened between the cross and Pentecost? Paul, the apostle, provides the missing link in 1 Corinthians 15 when he lists the resurrection of Je the appearances that Jesus made in the resurrection, he says in verse seven, then he appeared to James. So in a sense, James may have been a little bit like Thomas. He was like all of us, slow to believe. But the Lord was gracious to him as he has been with us. But we know nothing of this appearance with Jesus to James, only that it happened. Now, James then describes himself as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a humble title, more properly a slave of God, a free will bond slave of the father and of the Jesus who he grew up with, who he now declares to be both Lord, to be both God in the title Lord and God's anointed servant in the title Christ. This one he grew up with, he knew after his earthly life, now he, he doesn't know him any longer like that. He knows him as the Lord, Jesus Christ. And that may have been a startling reality to come to terms with. And familiarity is often our greatest challenge to trust in God. It's as though everything that we've learned for so long becomes too familiar. How could this one be 
be both God and Christ. And yet he was and he is today. So it's a lovely way to introduce this letter, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his writing is very direct. It's very practical. He doesn't theorize. He has a great love for the church. When you read the letter, he uses the word, my brothers, my beloved brothers, or brothers and sisters, my brothers, my beloved brothers, my brothers, again and again, <clears throat> 14 times throughout the book. So he loved the church, which he was such a big part of in Jerusalem. And he writes in a way that sometimes it's quite difficult to follow how one thought follows on to another one. But if you persist with it, you can see quite clearly where he is going. And if, as I think it is, this is an early letter to the church, which was at the beginning largely Jewish and had to face the significant challenges of working out how church should be, how God's people should be in a hostile world, then this serves us well, doesn't it? Because it can speak to us today because we're learning in a sense how to be God's people in a world that is sometimes very hostile to the gospel. So he starts his letter with this full on challenge that can speak straight to us today, as does all of his letter. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I chose the New American Standard Version purposefully because it uses this word endurance. The Greek word is hupomeno, which means to remain under. The idea of endurance is to remain in a place, to abide, mino, in a place. When Jesus said, abide in me, it was the same word, remain in me. So the idea of endurance is to consistently and constantly stay in that place of abiding and trusting in God. It's the idea, the thought is to remain in a place instead of leaving it. Remaining in a place of trust instead of leaving it. Remaining in a place of faith instead of leaving it. It's the idea of being unswerved from your purpose. It's about patient in persevering and not giving up. And this is the only way that it can be established if our faith is genuine, is for it to be tested. And this word testing was used for the testing of, of, of metals. When they have been tested, they're said to be approved or genuine. And so it is with faith. This is, our faith is tested that it might be shown to be genuine and give praise to the Lord. So we don't tr choose trials. We encounter them, or more literally, we fall into them. And James uses this word of various or varying trials encountering any and every difficult situation we face. Challenges that stretch us beyond where we want to go, beyond what we can control, beyond our ability to cope. That is when faith is tested, when it's exercised. Now, faith is based on something, or more precisely, it's based on someone. Faith is based on the faithfulness of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Faith rests on him and it's real. And when it's, your faith is tested and you endure, you remain, you abide in the place of trust. 
So when Jesus said, abide in me, remain in me, he's looking to encourage us to stay in that place of trusting him, relying upon him. Even if you wobbled a bit on the journey, you grow in faith when you continue to place your trust in him, when you endure. And therefore, this endurance has a result. It's more endurance. It's like the outcome of your faith is endurance. It's as though you're building something into your life. You grow in faith. Endurance has a result, more endurance. You become more complete and steadfast in your trust. And the goal is to grow in this so that you lack nothing, which is why he says that the testing of our faith develops endurance. And this endurance must finish its work so you may be mature, perfect, complete, not lacking anything. So this is a cause of great joy, which is why he said, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, we may not be into that place of joy quite yet. I'll come back to that. But the joy comes from knowing that the testing of our faith produces something in us. Now, as I was reflecting on this, I, I thought of school and the cross-country run. Did anyone do cross-country at school? You're not, you didn't have, oh, I got one there, Pauline, thank you. <laughs> I want you to imagine what cross-country was like at school. There were a few people who enjoyed the cross-country run. Most of us didn't. And it was always on a, a wet, muddy and a cold day. And the idea was that you ran across fields and, and cross fences uh, through mud for, for, for really quite a long period of time. And there were many people who had really good reasons why they didn't want to do it. I'm, I'm sure <laughs> you could think of a few, Pauline, why you, know, you shouldn't have to do the cross country. But most of us were made to do the cross country run, uh, whether we had physical weaknesses or not. Why did the schools make us do cross-country running? Well, they made us do something that required endurance, being constant and pressing on. And you learn about yourself when you have to endure and you learn about other people. And you are completely amazed when you get to the finishing line and that you did it. And what is more, on the way in the cross-country run, you probably encouraged a friend by running ahead of them or running beside them to say, keep going, you can do it. And you probably were encouraged by somebody else running beside you and said, you can do this, keep going. And I think the whole point of it was to show you what was in you and to build endurance, the will to keep going when you feel like giving up. That was cross country running, but we're running a different race. And in our race, we're told to keep our eyes on Jesus, who has gone ahead of us. We are told that he kept his eyes on the joy that was set before him. He kept his eyes, as it were, on the finishing line to be the author and completer of our salvation, the joy that was set before him. And we're told to consider him so that we don't give up and lose heart. And we help each other to say, keep going. You can do this even though it's tough and we know it's tough, keep going, keep focused, don't give up. And more importantly, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, and that parakletos is the one called alongside to help us, to comfort us. So we're in this race and it's a race that's an endurance race. And the encouragement of the scripture is, is to keep going and not to give up. 
I want you to think of a difficult time when you said no to giving up and decided I will put my trust in God. And when you came through that, you were stronger. You had grown in your faith. You were on that journey to be made complete, to be made mature, to be made stronger. Now, James says, you know that. So count it a great joy. That's a challenge, isn't it? A couple of years ago, I decided to write down all the times I could remember that I'd put my trust in God and he'd come through for me, trying to remember which year that had happened. And that was a great exercise, and I can commend it to you. You can put the really difficult times down, too, when you suffered loss and you grieved. And, but you know he stood with you, even in those really difficult times, even though things didn't work out the way that you'd hoped that they worked out. He didn't let you down, and you stayed in that place. You were constant, which is what abiding means. It's what enduring means. And there are things today that I know each one of us is walking through, challenges that we wouldn't choose for ourselves, but we find ourselves in them. And it takes a lot to consider them all joy. And we might not consider them today as joy. But in time, looking back, we might see the joy that we had God's presence with us. And when we cross the finishing line, James says that God will give us a crown of life. So James says, consider it joy now, because God has promised us that crown of life. So when everything is kicking off the wrong way, what does our faith say? What does our view of God say when things are not the way we want them to be? Or is our view of God conditional upon everything being okay, the way we want it to be? And if it's not the way we want it to be, and it's tough, and it wears us down, we don't want to be those that give up. And the way that we're not is to encourage ourselves in God and to encourage each other to fix our eyes upon Jesus, who is the one that didn't give up. He endured the cross, hanging naked there before many people who reviled him. It says he despised, thought little of the shame because he was considering us. He was considering what was before him. And that's the encouragement here is to, is, is, is to fix our eyes and to endure it's, we don't want to be those who, who, who struggle and shrink back. To use the parable of Jesus, uh, that's the seed sown on the rocky ground. He says, when, not if the times of testing comes, they fall away, but the seed sown on the good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word and retain it and by endurance produce a crop. That's Luke 8, 13 and 15. Now, there's a wisdom that understands this and sees the right course of action is to put your trust in God, to see that God is always concerned and cares for you. And therefore every challenge is an opportunity to trust him and to grow in faith. So James says, if you're not seeing it that way right now, then you should pray for wisdom. He says, if anyone lacks wisdom, which is a God perspective, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting, 
But the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That man is not to expect he will receive anything from the Lord because he's got two minds. He's double-minded, unstable in all his ways. This is wisdom to understand that faith will and is tested. And it needs wisdom to walk patiently in discerning how we should respond in each situation. And James says, if you're lacking that wisdom, ask God who gives generously. He'll show you how to respond in every situation. And as I was considering this and, and how we respond to challenges and trials, I thought of the serenity prayer that I'm sure some of you are very familiar with, attributed to Reinhold Niebuhr, which is, Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. So if we're not seeing things from God's perspective, then we need to pray for wisdom. God's perspective turns the worldly perspective upside down. It turns the weak into being strong, which is what joy in trials is all about. How crazy is that? How can you have joy in a trial? But God won't hold it against us if we ask for wisdom, admitting we don't see it yet. He's a generous giver to all. But ask for wisdom, believing that you will receive it, because doubting is the opposite to endurance. Doubting tosses us here and there. It doesn't receive anything. Doubting God's faithfulness destabilizes us. And then James goes on with this illustration of a different upside-down perspective, God's perspective. And one of the challenges might be that we are going through financial difficulty or difficult straits, um, bringing us into a, a, a condition of um, you know, not having as much uh, as we as we might wish we have. So James says, uh, let the brother of humble circumstance glory in his high position. That's upside down. That's inside out. And then in the next chapter, he explains what that high position is. He says, hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? That's a high position inheritors of the world that is god's wisdom to see that but to the rich he says and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like the flowering grass he will pass away for the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass it its flowers fall off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed so the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away this doesn't mean god is against wealth but it does mean that he's not necessarily a sign of his favor. It's transitory, will not last into eternity, cannot be taken with you, and will vanish away. It is not where we should put our trust. So he then concludes this passage on endurance by saying, blessed is a man, the person, the man or woman, who endures under test, under trial. For once he has been tested, once he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord promised to those who love him. To those who love him. Who are those who love him? I think they're the ones who believe in him and put their trust in him. Peter said something similar, didn't he? To those, though we haven't seen him, we love him. 
and and though we haven't seen him we we we, we rejoice in him believe in him with joy unspeakable and i think there's a kind of equation between trust and love the ones we love we trust the ones we trust we love to those who love him these are the ones who believe in him who put their trust in them to them he promises a crown of life that is the outcome of this endurance it's a crown it's like a laurel to throw at his feet after we've crossed the finishing line and we give him all the glory we give him all the praise we give him all the honor but it was only his strengthening it was only his presence it was only his love in our lives that enabled us to stand and we keep our eyes on him so this remaining in him staying in the place where he's put us trusting in him enduring in him it's the great theme of this epistle that he returns to again and again so that's all i had to say on those uh, 13 or 12 verses in in james i just like if i can to to pray and maybe i'm going to invite one or two others to pray and um and then we can then we can break out um, i wonder if you could just stop our recording now